invite you to take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 24 in our series of looking through Matthew 24 and 5, the king's blueprint for the future. We come to verse 29 through 31, which explains and gives detail of the second coming of Christ. So we'll look at it this week and next week. There are two monumental events in human history. The first one was when Christ came into the world, when God took on human form and came into the world to die for the sins of mankind. The second one is when he comes back to rule and reign. Both of these were predicted by hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament. We're also told about the second coming in the New Testament. When Christ came the first time, he fulfilled all of the prophecies about his first coming, literally, normally. None of them allegorically or spiritually. He did them. He would be born a certain place. He would go a certain place. He would say a certain thing. He would be born a certain way. He would die a certain way. And he did those literally. The same is true with the second coming. You have reason to believe that everything that he promises about the second coming will be fulfilled literally, normally, just like it was in the first coming. But they are very different. In the first coming, he came very quietly. And really, you could only see him for who he was by faith. In the second coming, he will come very visibly, and every eye, believer and unbeliever, will see him and know who he is. In the first coming, he came to reconcile mankind under God, to pay for sin, to take the obstacle out of the way between God and man. In the second coming, he comes to judge mankind for their sin. Everything is different about those two comings. One of them, he died. The other one, he comes and reigns, sets up his Davidic kingdom and rules. And he comes across the heavens from the east to the west, verse 27 of our passage. When you look around, you you wonder why he doesn't come. I mean, this has been the heart cry of God's people since the beginning, since the promises were given that he would return again. And we still have that. And when you look at the world and you, you just see these atrocities and they're multiplied and they get worse and worse and more numerous, Come, Lord Jesus, as John said. But why doesn't he? I've, I've told you a little bit about this, but I want you to fully understand what's really happening. There's always immorality and, 
and uh, debauchery, and there always has been, there is. But our country was founded uh, in large part on Christian principles. And there was the rule of law. And law was objective, meaning that everybody could read it, and if you, if you go 30 mile an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone, you get a ticket, you get a ticket, etc. It's just objective. Doesn't matter what you feel about it. That's the, the lady with the scales weighing the objective, empirical evidence to determine guilt or innocent. Now, it doesn't always play out because man is sinful. But it was there in the idea that law is supposed to be objective and unbiased. And you say, well, sometimes it's biased. And so then that needs fixed. And we're constantly trying to do that. But you're living in a new era, and I've referred to it several times as an alternative universe, but you can actually call it an alternative America. It's going on around the globe, but for us, it's an alternative America, and we're asked every day to live in the old America where law meant something and there was objectivity, and this new America where we can actually be found guilty of not recognizing law based upon someone's subjective feeling. Subjective means you can't tell what I'm feeling. You have to listen to what I say. Objective means you can tell him a man, just look at me. I can look at a tree out here and I can see it's a tree and you can look at it 10 minutes later and it's a tree. That's objectivity. Subjectivity is when you make it something else that everybody doesn't have the ability to see the same thing. So we get caught in the immorality of everything, and we should. I'm not minimizing that, but I'm trying to show you we are, we've entered into a, a dangerous area where there really is no end. It began with a homosexual agenda. Now remember, I'm not trying to get into all the details, just this one pipeline I want to mention to you. When the homosexual agenda and gay marriage was allowed by Scotus, the Supreme Court, and homosexuality is recognized, you have to understand there's no objective evidence for that. It's subjective, what they feel. They feel they're a homosexual. They sense it. doesn't matter what age. It's just that they sense it. And the only way you can know that is because they tell you that. That they feel it, you see. So we now have laws, Supreme Court laws, that you have to abide by recognizing that or you will be punished by law. You see the transition that happened there? And so now we've gone into the trans people world. We're not only... Are they saying, I believe I'm homosexual or same sex, but I'm another gender. And gender is what's going on inside of you, so they're distinguishing between sex and gender. But notice that gender is dominating. 
So a man with all objective criteria is a man. And he can say, but inside I'm a woman. My in, inner me. Well, you could have people doing this stuff all through history. We all have subjective feelings. But the difference is we're making that law and it's punishable. You see what I'm getting at? In other words, you could say you're a pumpkin. But where we are now is if you say you're a pumpkin, then they're writing law that you have to recognize that. Because the inner subjective feeling is ruling over the objective. So we have to go to the individual. We can't look at them and say, well, there's a man or there's a woman. We have to go and ask, what are you? And by the way, there's fluidity with that. They can be one thing one day and one the next. And you can be penalized and fined for not using appropriate words to describe them. And it's getting worse and worse. You see, that's the subjectivity that we're under. You say, well, how did we get to that point? It came out of Harvard with what's called critical legal theory like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw, and they are law scholars. Derek Bell's dead now, but they were law scholars at, at uh, Harvard, and now it's spread to all, all over the country in law schools. And that's where storytelling carries more weight than objective facts. It is that law is biased, so you can't really depend upon it. There really isn't objectivity. They say that law is always political. So we're no longer under that, or they're trying to move us totally where we're not. We're under subjective storytelling. If I tell you I look like a man, but I tell you I'm a woman, you are to abide by that. And we'll make law and punishment on that. And then we moved into what I told you was the the, what's called furries, the more technical name would be Therians. And these are people that spiritually and mentally, the, the Therians particularly, identify with an animal. Now it's one thing, and we've had people who, who've done this, but it was a psychological disorder. And now it's becoming something that you have to recognize because that's their identity, their chosen identity. And they want us to accommodate them, having the things that you need there for an animal in a public place, to let them dress like this wherever they go, and have a penalty of law for not recognizing it. Notice what happened is, you had homosexuality, that's, we've moved to feelings rather than objective law, then we move to trans, and so now it's all mixed up, and it can go in and out from day to day. And then we move to the animal world. Remember, God created man and woman here, and the animal world is distinct. So now, by law, we're being asked to recognize these that claim that they're an animal. And then I told you the next thing that's on the scene, it's already here. It's already here. 
And I, I have a, a blog coming out tomorrow that documents everything I'm saying, shows you the sources and everything. But it's called trans-age. It has other names. But the idea is that age is a construct. See, what they're saying is marriage is a construct. It's not divinely given. What a man is, what a woman is, is a construct. And so if it's a social construct, we constructed it, we can deconstruct it. That's the logic behind that. And so in the trans-age, your age is a construct, and so they have an internal age and an external age or a chronological age. <clears throat> and the chronological age, it's objective. It's when you were born, and we can go day by day and know your birthday. But that's not the significant age. The significant age is your internal age, what you feel like what you identify as. So I told you, this, is, this has been coming, and there's going to be really, I don't see any way you can block pedophilia eventually. Now, it's being blocked now, but they're becoming very, very vocal, vocal with it. But you can have a 20-year-old who identifies as a 13-year-old and a 6-year-old who identifies as a 13-year-old and there's no laws broken, you see. They had a case, I think it was in Chicago, where a young man molested three children and he claimed that he was a younger age and so he should be innocent. I don't know if you remember the guy in Ireland who wanted to lower his age from 60 to 40. So all of this is going on, but it's getting worse. And again, you, you, you are the bigot when you say that a 20-year-old shouldn't have sex with a 4-year-old. And I've actually heard them say there is nothing wrong with a, an adult having sex with a 3-year-old so long as the 3-year-old consents. Do you understand what a bizarre world this is? And we used to not think in these terms because we couldn't think this bizarrely. But we're there. I don't know where it's going to end, but it does make you say, come, Lord Jesus. I mean, how much worse? And I think about when we reared our children, it was very hard. And there were so many influences, and we were just dealing with it all the time, and, and just so destructive. That was child's play compared to parents rearing children today. It was child's play. But it seemed horrible, and it was horrible. It's just when you compare horrible with nth degree horribleness, it looks a little milder. Parents have so much more to be conscious of and aware of, and I just don't see how it can be done without the grace of God in prayer. But that's where we are. So come, Lord Jesus. Why does he not come? If we hate the ill, the evil, we don't hate it anything like he does. So when he comes, he will come to fulfill all of the promises that have been made. 
every promise. Just like he fulfilled all of the promises that were made for the first coming, he fulfilled all of them, every one of them. There are no exceptions. So all of the promises that relate to the second coming, when he comes, he will fulfill all of them. And there are more prophecies related to the second coming than there were to the first coming. And he will fulfill every single one of them. So he will come and fulfill the promises. He will come and gather his people. And he will come and judge the world in sin. Seems like there's plenty to judge now. Not only our sin, but just the public nature and the acceptance of it. I mean, we are the bigots. Why doesn't he come? I want you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. And I want to read a few verses to kind of help on some of this. Second Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> so there's a few things I'm going to comment on just so you get the whole structure of what's going on. We can't stay on each verse, but I can comment to give you the order and what the Spirit of God's saying so that you read the verses that we're focusing on in context. So if you go back up to Verse 3, he said, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their own mocking, following after their own lust. You can just stay there, but in, in Jude, verse 18, and that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. So Peter says, know this. And in Jude, he just got through talking about the apostles. And what they're saying is, know this, do not be surprised. There will be those that come mocking and jeering. But they're following their own lust, their lust to be God, their lust to live like they want to, their lust to call a man a woman and a woman a man. They're violating everything of creation. And so they're mocking and jeering the very idea that there's some accountability. That was lost in the 60s. Now, it doesn't mean everybody was moral in America prior to that, but we're talking about an overarching idea. There was always this idea, even the deists that helped found the country, they believed there was a day of accountability before God. That was lost. We can decide what's right, what's wrong. We can do it anywhere anybody, anything, and a man can become a woman, and on and on and on. Because there is no judgment. That's the premise of unbridled immorality. 
That's the premise that there is no law that we live under, nor a law to base law on. It's all subjective. And so he said, know this. You were told by the prophets. You were told by the apostles. You were told by Christ. And he's talking to them in the first century, but to us as well. We should not be surprised at all, nor should it discourage us in our faith, nor should it make us wonder, is he coming? We were foretold, Jude says, and Peter and the Lord Jesus and other apostles. So mockers will come mocking, and that mocking is the idea of, of cynical laughing, jeering. You're not the Christ. You're, you're just a Jew from Nazareth. He's not coming back. He died, don't you know? There's no judgment coming. You know, you Christians, you can join in church if you want to, and you can sing, and you can talk about all this, but he died. I mean, we know for a fact he died. And all that other stuff's just what you guys believe, but he's not coming back. There's no judgment. We're the judge. We decide. Mocking. Jeering. Verse 4. This is what they're jeering about. Mocking. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, he said he was coming, but where is it? <laughs> well, show it to me. I mean, there's no evidence. He hasn't, he hasn't come back. It's been a long time. Done this ever since the fathers has fall, fell asleep. And I think he's talking about the Jewish fathers. This would have been primarily Jews he's writing to. And then the other one goes back further. All continues just as it was from the beginning. In science, that's called uniformitarianism, gradualism. So Darwinism is built on the idea that everything is uniform, meaning what's going on today and last year and the year before, a hundred years before, a thousand years before, that's the way it's been all the time. So we can calculate very mathematically how old everything is, how things are going, etc., by looking at today and the recent past and the further past, and we go back thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, and then billions of years, so we can talk about 15 billion years ago. Well, nobody was there, and we don't have any eyewitness testimony, but we can look at this and determine that's uniformitarianism. That's what it's all built on. Now, I'm not trying to go into the science here. I'm trying to look at it, the spiritual, and we do talk about the science part of it and the flaws and all of that, but I want you to focus for a moment on the spiritual part of it. If everything that has happened, Christ hasn't come back, means that he will not come back, 
then we're wasting our time. And a young person who learns Darwinism and buys into it wastes their time with Christianity. Because everything is just continuing as it has been. There's no catastrophes. There's no interventions of God. Never been an intervention of God. There's no catastrophes. We can study the earth and the geological record and we can determine this and this and this because it's uniform. So this tells us this many years passed and, this, and we can go back another million years and the same thing's true in another million and we can keep finding out because it's all uniform. Now, if there were disruptions where God was intervening in, in creation, well, that would mess it up. If there was a God, the beginning here is kind of the beginning. It's not like you think of a beginning. It's a beginning that isn't a beginning, meaning there's no intervention that brought it about. It's just natural phenomena. So that's what he says. They're mocking the second coming. And what's it based on? That things just continue as they are. Someone told me one time, you know, you never win anybody to Christ by arguing against Darwinism. And I responded, I said, that's exactly right. They only get saved by the gospel. But many people are lost because they've bought into Darwinism. Because it just says there's no judgment coming. Christ is not coming back. There's no intervention. We do it all ourselves. And I was in a meeting several years ago, and a professor at OU was in that meeting, and he was on the committee, the national committee that was working, and I assume still is. And the goal stated by him was that we are to work, this committee is to uh, orchestrate getting Darwinianism, evolution, in every age class, in every class, in every subject, from kindergarten all the way up. There's no judgment coming. A child sits and they study, they write diagram sentences, Darwinian favoring sentences. They look up in science, they look up in history, wherever it is. It does literature. You think they can't just choose books that back up Darwinism? We used to diagram sentences. Jack and Jill went up the hill. That's gone. That's over. Jack and Jill aren't going up the hill. But it's Darwinism. So they can infiltrate every subject, every grade level throughout the country. And people are becoming more and more hardened to the gospel. That's because they learn that things are like they've always been. Nothing's really changed. There's no interventions. So Peter responds to that in three ways. Verse 5, and when they maintain this, it escapes their notice 
that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and by the water. It escapes their understanding that it all started with God's intervention. There wasn't anything. Eternity is God, period. There wasn't anything in eternity. God is eternity. He is the eternal one. And at one time there was nothing, just God. So he intervened to bring it to pass. And notice, if you go back and read in Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning uh, God created the heavens and earth. But listen to verse 2. And the earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And that's what Peter says, that he brought it about, and it was formed out of water and by water. So the earth and everything in it, the universe, was formed by the Word of God in water. That was the first intervention. But when they maintain the truth of Darwinism, that going back to the origin of everything, not just evolution in the sense of change over time within species and so forth, but Darwinianism, Darwinism. When they maintain that, they are oblivious to the fact that God intervened and that started it. That's very important from a spiritual perspective. Because if he started it, he owns it. And he created it. And it's every bit of it is accountable to him. That's why they don't want to deal with that. Notice the second thing. He not only intervened in creation, but through which the antecedent of through which, the which is the water. So he created with the water and the word, and then in verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Speaking of the time of Noah. If you deny the flood, you deny the Bible, period. It wasn't a puddle. You wouldn't have had to build a big boat. You could have walked around it. It covered the globe so that inhabitants could not live. It was God's judgment. It was an intervention of God. One of the reasons Darwinists hate the flood is because it's a catastrophe which changes uniformitarianism. It wasn't always this way. It changed. And if it changed, what changed it? Or who changed it? And if he created it and he changed it, we are accountable to him. You see, the, the spiritual reality of this is far worse than errors that are made in various areas for, of science regarding this. It's that people are being duped to believe they are the end, it's all going to be the same, it just keeps rolling right along, and they lull themselves into death and eternal damnation. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6 says, says that the end won't come until the, till the restrainer lets go of the Antichrist, lets him come about. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says that God, Christ, upholds all things. Now look at verse 7. He deals with a second coming, or, or this issue. But by, the, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved, held up for fire, for judgment. They're kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So what's holding the universe together is God. What makes the laws work is God. He wrote the laws, invented the laws, laws, and set them in place. And now he upholds it. He's not distant. He is active, involved. And he upholds all things. And Satan wants to come ahead, but he's holding back Satan's plan. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's restraining him. But he's going to judge the ungodly. That's what the second coming is about. Judging the ungodly. Christ calling his people to himself and setting up the Davidic kingdom. So he says in verse 8. So that's the three reasons he gives. Creation, he, he intervened, he intervened in the flood, and he will intervene again. So uniformitarianism is a heretical idea when it says that God doesn't intervene in his creation. Verse 8, but do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. This has nothing to do with the days, six days in Genesis. What he's talking about is just like us, we're thinking, how long? How long, Lord? How long? I mean, it's been, it's been these, all these thousands of years and millennials. How long? And he says, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. You're thinking like mankind. Don't impose that on God. So it's not that one 24-hour period is a thousand years of days, 24-hour period. It means it's not the same. It's an overstatement. It's just say, there's no comparison. So I tell people often when you, when you die and go to heaven and your mate is here or your child is gone or whatever it is, to you it is a long time. And the days roll by and the months roll by and the years roll by. To them it's a twinkling of an eye. Just like that. You're not there, you're there. Just like that. And God is outside of time. So he's trying to get us to think like that. Though for us, and we think it's as evil as it can get, well, I've learned that's a wrong thought. I try not to have that anymore. And I remember saying of one president many years ago, I said, he's the worst president you could ever have. Well, that was wrong. That guy's not looking near as bad as I thought, and he's really bad. So that brings us to verse 9, the why. 
Why? The Lord's not slow about his coming or his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Is that our heart? He looks through all the evil and the trashing and all of the things because he wants all saved. That's why he sent his son. Look what it says. The Lord's not slow about his promise as some count slowness. He's not procrastinating. He's not timid about doing what's coming. He's not hesitant about it. He's not second thinking it or guessing it. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It comes across in, but he's patient towards you. He's tolerant. He'll tolerate an enormous amount because he wishes for you to be saved. And the word wishing there is bulamai in the original. There are two words, thelao uh, and bulamai, and it's not important to remember the words. It is important to remember there's two words that talk about God's wish or will. Because sometimes you'll be in a verse, and like this one, and it'll be bulamai, and that is his wish, his desire, his heart, with a plan. That's the idea of that word. It carries with it the idea of a plan. There's a plan in place. So he's not, he's not waiting like some people call it. He has a plan, and it's unfolding. But the other word means wish and, and desire. They're both translated the same way in this verse and the one I'll read in a moment. But they're two different Greek words, and that one doesn't have as much emphasis on the plan. So some people will take one of these words and say, well, that's not God's decretive will. His decretive will rides over that. No, it doesn't. He uses two different words saying the same thing. It's not God's decree. It's his wish, his desire, his heart for people to be saved, for all to be saved. Look back at 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. says this, and this is after he told them in verse 2 to be praying for all men. Okay, so he said for kings and all who are in authority, so forth. And he said, made on prayers on behalf of all men, verse 1. And then he says, verse 3, this is, a, is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Praying for all men is good and acceptable. And verse 4, who desires fellow the other word for his will and his wish, he desires all people, that's the word anthropos, it's a general term for mankind, all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, this is the truth he wants them to come to, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time means that Christ, when he did it and died for sin, it was at the proper time in God's plan. 
It wasn't off schedule a bit. That's what it means. Look in verse 10 of chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. For it is this, for it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially believers. The especially believers, He is our Savior, and we are saved. He is the Savior of all, in that they can be saved. So every time you see the evil and everything running amok, and your heart cries for the Lord to come, cry for what He cries for. He's coming. But He desires all men to come to Him. And we need to start thinking about the people that are around us and close to us. So God's not coming back because He wants you saved. And I know you. And I'm going to be a part of that. Go back to our passage and Ezekiel 33, 11 says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. So the delay of Christ, the delay that it seems to us, it's right on plan for him, is because of his mercy. Once his mercy is withdrawn, everything falls apart. He has a heart for man. Romans 2, 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So there's three characteristics that are given here of the second coming of Christ. And no, we're not going to see all three of them today, so you don't have to worry. You will make it to eat at a proper time. So the first one is, is astrological anarchy. One of the characteristics of the second coming of Christ is astrological anarchy. He says in verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. And the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Much different than the first coming of Christ. Notice when this happens. Immediately after the tribulation. I've given you several reasons why you know the tribulation hasn't happened. It wasn't fulfilled in 70 A.D., when Titus ransacked Jerusalem? Because I know that because immediately after the tribulation, Christ comes. To say that he came in some spiritual, ethereal, unrecognizable, mystic way in 70 AD is to strip every word in this passage from its normal meaning. You can't get there by reading the Scripture. This is the definitive passage on the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. 
such spiritualizing that they do to try to show that the tribulation has happened and that Christ somehow came back in an immaterial sense strips all of these words of any meaning. But if you'll just let it say what it said, and that's what we try to do. You start in verse 4, and you're reading through the tribulation of seven years, and then you come chronologically to immediately he comes. It's in chronological order. So who would take a simple passage that's in chronological order that shows there'll be a tribulation, great tribulation, Christ will come back into the heavens as lightning from the east to the west, and when he comes, there'll be astrological upheaval. It's in perfect order. Who would take that and put it in some kind of mystical disorder? Only Satan. I'm not saying all people that do that. I'm just saying they're following a lie. I'm as convinced of that as anything that I know. That this is the way he comes back because it's so clear. You have to violate every principle of normal communication to get to that point. So verse 27, which we commented on last week, So just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And that speaks to the nature of His coming. It's going to be sudden. And everybody's going to see it. So that's the nature of His coming. But verse 29, the passage we're in now, speaks of the timing. So we know from verse 27 the nature of His coming It's going to be visible, and it's going to be sudden. But when will that happen? Immediately following the tribulation. Meaning he ends the tribulation with the battle of Armageddon and establishing the the Davidic kingdom. So it's not this little time passes. He's there. He brings it to a close. So the one in verse 29 is emphasizing the timing And the significance of it is that he's, in verse 30 and 31, you see he's gathering his people and he's judging those that are not. That's the significance of it. So in those two verses, verse 27, 29, and following, you have have the the manner in which he comes, you have the timing in which he comes, and the purpose with which he comes. So notice verse 29 and 30 and 31. We're not going to read 30 and 31. We'll look at them next week. Immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will be dark, the stars will fall, the heavens are shaken, tribes will mourn as they see him in the sky, the tribes of Israel, they'll recognize he's the Messiah that they've been looking for, and the elect will be gathered by the angels. It's future, it's a glorious, spectacular coming. So if you're thinking about him coming today, if he were coming today, and he came from the east to the west like lightning shooting across the sky, it would be visible to everyone. But it's more dramatic than that. Because apparently it will be in a moment when the world is engulfed, the universe is engulfed, in pitch black darkness. The sun will not be shining. 
The moon will not shine. The stars will not shine. On the earth, we've looked at several things that tell you everything is destroyed. All electrical systems, all of the utilities, they're all gone. The only light you might have is if you have a phone that still has a battery and it's going dead. And in the midst of that darkness, Christ will return in spectacular and undeniable glory that goes across the sky of the universe and no one will deny he has come. Will you be ready? Let's bow and pray. Father, I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you and waiting on something else. But Lord, there is no time to wait. You will come back just as you said, just as you said you would in the first coming. And you did everything as you said you would do, and so shall you in the second coming. But it will be glorious and spectacular and conquering and judging those that don't know you. And God, I pray that no one would leave today that doesn't just bow before you in humility, confess their sins, they've broken your law. They can't fix it. They can't do anything about it. But by your grace, they can trust the one who did everything that's needed and did it for them and for me and for all of us. Because you desire people be saved and not suffer your wrath and judgment. But you are not timid about that, for your holiness demands it. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd be sensitive to your spirit, whether it's coming to talk to somebody about salvation, maybe praying right now for someone that they need to witness to, that they would have boldness and go, following Christ in baptism and standing publicly with him, giving testimony to his saving grace. Join in this fellowship. We love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and sing, and if God's spoken to you today, you come.